Join me in Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. We begin a series this morning through Genesis 1 through 11, and it will actually turn into about five series until we get to the last chapter of Genesis sometime this summer. But I've got five series on the book of Genesis, and I want to invite you to be here for every message. I'll begin on Sunday morning and then continue Wednesday night and then pick up the next Sunday morning and go on uh, Sundays and Wednesdays alternating uh, or or, uh, progressing chronologically through the uh, text. We meet on Wednesday nights at 4 and at 6, and that's when we will cover the next chapter, Genesis chapter 3, this coming uh, Wednesday night. Larry Norman is really responsible in many ways for the contemporary Christian music movement. And it's been a marvelous and wonderful thing in uh, nearly all respects, not all respects, but nearly all respects. Did a marvelous job and marvelous work uh, with that. But uh, Larry was a very sensitive and very, very creative young man, even as a young man on the uh, West Coast as he grew up in the Bay Area of uh, California. He went to school as a 10-year-old boy, and well, he started sooner than that, but one day um, when he got into the, I think about the fourth grade, he was about 10 years old, and he got in, and a, uh, he met a bully, and the bully tortured him. And Larry wasn't much of a fighter. Uh, he didn't want to be. But he knew he needed some extra strength. So he went home and he cut out and he sewed his own Superman suit with cape. And he put it on and put his clothes on top of it and wore it to school. Thinking that might give him a little advantage over this bully. Two disappointments. Number one, it did not work. Didn't work at all. And number two, two years later, Uh, The man that played Superman on television in the 50s, George Reeves, took his own life two years later. And in his uh, now 12-year-old mind, he wondered, how could Superman do such a thing if he's Superman? You know, people want a change. They want a transformation from what they are to something else. uh, And they're not able to achieve it on their own. But 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, picks up on the imagery of Genesis 1 and 2, which is about creation. And it says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. That is what God is able to do. And that's actually what takes place here in Genesis 1 and 2. The earth starts out one way and ends up another. Uh, Look at Genesis chapter 1, beginning in verse number 1. It says here in the text, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. Originally, when God created the heavens and the earth, it was formless and void. And there was darkness over the face of the deep. There there was no light. There was no vegetation. There there were not the lands and the seas. Uh, There was not the the moon and the sun. Uh, There were not the herbs, uh, the beast of the field, the birds of the air, the fowl or the fish of the sea. Uh, There were no humans. It, it, It originally was formless and void and dark. Well, look what happens in verse number three. Then God said, Let there be light. And he begins the six days of creation, rest the seventh day. But look what happens after his creation of humanity on the sixth day in verse number 31. 
It starts out formless and void and dark, and then he begins, and I don't mean to go Kenny Rogers on you, but he begins to decorate the life of the world. And in verse 31, it says, Then God saw everything he had made, and indeed, it was very good. Do you know that's what, that's what Jesus Christ can do in a life? A life can be formless and void and dark, and God gets a hold of it, and it becomes a new creation, and God looks at that life and says, Behold, it is very, very good. And so the creation story becomes something of an image and a hope and a promise and a prophecy of what God can do in a life and one day will do in the world. You need to take time to look carefully at the first two chapters of the Bible and compare them to the last two chapters of the Bible and you will find that the themes are uh, identical. Uh, only the last two chapters of the Bible are brilliant and magnified. So what God intended in Genesis 1 and 2, he finishes in the last two chapters of the Bible and magnifies his son in the middle of it, which was his plan to begin with. God is able to transform something formless and void and dark into something that is very, very good. Well, how does God do that? How does God do that. Well, God, God makes this transformation in several ways. One, he does it with correction. He does it with correction. I learned when I was teaching uh, graduate students in Fort Worth that oftentimes students sometimes have to unlearn what they have learned in order to learn something better, higher, and more accurate and true. Oftentimes they would come into a classroom with um, some misconceptions and notions that weren't serving them very well at all. And misconceptions and notions don't. But uh, they would have to unlearn some things. And so I, I would go through and anticipate uh, uh, things that were um, uh, not, not entirely accurate about the subject. And, and I would take care of those, try to clear that out, reiterate that during the semester, and, and try to build them up in a more accurate way of understanding that subject. The Israelites are much the same way. The Israelites have been in Egypt for 400 years. God sends the plagues to Egypt. He releases Israel out of Egypt and takes them through the Red Sea, the great miracle of Exodus 14. They celebrated in Exodus 15, and then Moses gets to writing. Moses starts writing the most read verses in all of human literature. And the first one is the first verse. Look there. Again. Verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That is a statement Moses pens under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And there is no blushing here. There's no embarrassment. There is no hesitation. God announces with the first words out of his mouth, off the pen of Moses, I created the heavens and the earth. I am the Lord. I am God over all. I create. You got to deal with it. And let me say to you, don't you ever be embarrassed by Genesis 1 and 2. Don't ever, ever be embarrassed. Despite the fact we're in a university town, do not be embarrassed by Genesis 1 and 2. Now, don't make people who think differently your enemy. They're, they're not your enemy. Make them your friend. But do not ever be embarrassed by Genesis 1 and 2. The Bible begins with a flat-out miracle that is beyond human description and human ability. Uh, the high point of the Bible 
is a large series of miracles with Jesus that culminates in the resurrection. And then the Bible ends with the miracle, the most brilliant of all, his second coming. So the Bible begins with the miracle. Its climax is a flurry of miracles. Its end is a miracle. God is a miracle-working God. He puts it before humanity, and he does not accommodate unbelief or doubt. He's patient with it. But he does not accommodate it. He takes it and he doesn't hide it. He's not embarrassed by it. He puts it forward because at this stage, when Moses is writing, he's got to correct a lot of mental malpractice of the Israelites. Mental malpractice. Or what my dad used to call stinking thinking. He's got to correct a lot of all of that. What's happened over four centuries is that Israel has mixed its faith with some Egyptian paganism. And that shows up in Exodus 32 when they worship the golden calf when Moses has gone longer than uh, their preference. And so that's what they've done. And so from the very beginning, God announces, I've created the heavens and the earth. The Egyptians believe that the different elements of creation in Genesis 1 and 2 were gods themselves and that Pharaoh ruled them. And so Moses comes along, corrects this, and says, No, God created the heavens and the earth. Uh, These things are not independent gods and deities. Oh, no. And, And Pharaoh doesn't rule. I just proved that with the plagues, God would say. Instead, God created the heavens and the earth. Ladies and gentlemen, this text then overthrows all paganism, which is still rampant today in the world. It overthrows atheism. It overthrows classism, where one class thinks it's superior or another class thinks it's inferior to others. It overthrows racism. It overthrows every ism that I pray will soon become a wasm because God created the heavens and the earth. And so one of the things we've got to understand is that We experience transformation in life, not when we walk in myths, but when we walk in truth. And that's why Jesus said in John 8, 32, you shall know the truth and the truth will set you free. Because you introduce yourself to the God who can pull all of this off. Now, this is what is said here in the text. God created the heavens and the earth, and that would include humanity. That led C.S. Lewis to say that you have never met an ordinary person. You've never met a mere mortal. The people that you interact with, that you joke with, sometimes that you criticize, are immortal, and they will live forever and forever. Ladies and gentlemen, I sure do wish the governor of New York and the New York legislature knew that. You've never met, you've never met an ordinary person. What if we began to treat all human beings as if they were the creation of God? Not merely the result of some kind of random assembly of uh, processes and particles and elements that just happen to come together like the naturalist, the naturalistic evolutionist might tell us and teach us. What if we believe God formed and shaped and fashioned every human in his image. What would it look like in the hallways of schools? What would it look like on congested highways? What would it look like in homes? What would it look like in every womb? What would it look like if everyone took that to heart? And I've got to say to you, it is the most foolish thing 
And I don't mean to be insulting, but it is the most foolish thing to drill into the heads of kids naturalistic evolution like they are simply the random assembly of chance and randomness and then expect them to act any better than animals, to expect them to mate better than animals, to treat one another better than animals, and, and then be surprised when they shoot each other down in schoolyards. And to be surprised when they mistreat each other, even with the fake uh, anonymity of social media. Ladies and gentlemen, so many of the human conflicts and difficulties that we have today are rooted in the notion that we are mere animals, not the creation of God, and not accountable to Him. And by the way, that, that oftentimes that desire for no accountability is really what happens to be much of the inspiration for American atheism. Well, let me make it very clear to you. If you're confused, let, let's clarify it. You are created by God. God put you together and fashioned you as you are on purpose. You have a purpose before God. You were created by Him and for Him. And because of our sin, we've drifted from God, and you and I are so important to Him. Our eternity is so important that He sent Jesus to die in our place. Now listen to me. Listen, don't miss this. The cross of Jesus Christ is a commentary on the seriousness and the value of human creation. It is. It took the cross of Jesus Christ and that agonizing death to pay for our sins because our sins were that wicked. That's how seriously God takes our attitudes, our disposition, and our behavior. It took the blood of the cross to pay for our sins. But the cross, not only as a commentary on the seriousness of our choices and sins, the cross is a commentary on how important it is for God to be near and next to you for all eternity, for your sins to be canceled, for them to be removed, and for Jesus Christ to be master and Lord of your life. That is so important to God, He slaughtered His Son at the cross to make it happen. And aren't you glad He raised Him from the dead? That's what God can do in a life. So, don't be confused. You're the creation of God, and He's come to reclaim you and redeem you. And it doesn't matter how far you have sunk. It doesn't matter how far you've drifted, how badly you've embarrassed yourself or your family, just how distant you feel from God today. makes no difference. God can take care of it all, and everything is ready for you to be made right with Him today. Just trust Him. At the end of the message, we'll give you the chance to do that. And so that's the first way. That God transforms formless void and darkness into something that's very good. But there, there's a second way he does that. Not only through correction, but also through cause. Through cause. Now in your home, it would be a silly thing to use your sunroom as a kitchen. It'd be a silly thing to use your backyard as a bedroom. It'd be silly to use your closet, one of your closets, as a living room or a dining room. That's not why they were made. A sunroom is to be a sunroom. A backyard is to be a backyard. A closet is made for storing clothes. A living room is for gatherings. A dining room is for uh, evening meals and other meals. Uh, that's what they're made for. There is a purpose. And just like a family and a builder constructs a home to serve a particular purpose, that's what God has done with you and everything in the universe and everything in the world. There's a cause. You are here for a because, a divine because, a divine purpose, you are here for that reason. And the text makes that very, very clear. Now, God 
has made this clear. Let me give you a few facts about Genesis 1 and 2. The word God is used here just in the first chapter 35 times. And God said with power, creative power, 12 times. 15 times he said, let it be or let something occur. And there was an immediate result. And so when God said, let there be something, it happened. Psalms 148.5 says, he commanded and they were created. Hebrews 11.3 says, by the word of God, the worlds were framed. God spoke it into existence. Have you noticed? Look at verse 3, for example. God said, let there be light, and there was light. Light did not exist. Now, the skeptics and the critics of Genesis 1 have a field day with verse 3. They say, well, listen, the sun was not created till later, and here you already have light. Well, is that not the silliest thing you've ever heard? Ladies and gentlemen, the sun is not the only source of light. There are other sources. Why is that so hard to understand? And so um, God said, let there be light, and there was light. So there was no light before. Verse 2, everything was dark. There was no light before. Then God said, with the power of his word, let there be light, and there was light. Have you ever noticed that something that did not exist obeyed God? Now, if something that existed obeyed God, you could understand. But light does not exist, and God said, let there be light. There was light. Something that did not exist obeyed God, and thus it is throughout the rest of the chapter. That which did not exist obeyed God when God said, let there be, and it came into being and existence. Do you know there is no potentate, there's no monarch, there's no king, there's no legislature, there's no authority any, anywhere in the world, especially the parents of preschoolers, who've ever had this kind of obedience and immediately. Never before at all. Immediately, everything obeys God because it is serving His purpose. Now, let me, let me comment for just a moment that if uh, you are aware or think that there may be some, you're worried there may be some contradictions between the Bible and science, let me give you a couple of things, okay? Let me give you my approach to it, and I need everybody to take their index finger and lift it up of your right hand or left hand, whatever you write with, and I want you to draw a circle. Draw it big. Draw it big, Okay. Let's say within that circle is all the possible knowledge humans could ever know. That all the knowledge of the world, things we know and things we don't know, could fit into that circle. All right? Now, take your index finger again. And I want you to draw within that circle a circle that represents everything we do know. Well, let me draw mine a little bit bigger. My large circle, all the knowledge that could be known is this big. Let me draw it this way. Okay? Let's imagine that all we do know is that big. Now draw within that circle everything that you know. It's quite humbling, isn't it? It is for me. Whenever you come upon some scientific information and it uh, appears that there may be a contradiction between the Bible and science. Don't, don't, don't lose your faith and don't panic. Uh, most likely, in my view, uh, the, the, the resolution to that conflict is outside your circle of knowledge 
and maybe outside the circle of all human knowledge someplace else. It's just that we haven't discovered what we need to discover up to this point. So go ahead and do faithful Bible study and believe the Word on one hand. On the other hand, keep doing great science. Let's do it all. That's perfectly fine. And the truth is, God is the author of both, and God does not contradict Himself. It's just likely we need to learn more. Now, what's the likelihood that we don't know everything? What's the likelihood that we here don't know everything that's already known? See? All right. Well, that, that's something to keep in mind. Now, Galileo, and I don't deserve to be mentioned in his same breath, but he had it better than that. He said, if you see a contradiction between the Bible and science, the devout Christian Galileo. How many of you knew Galileo was a devout Christian? Yeah, not many of us. Um, Galileo, the devout Christian and the scientist said, if you see a contradiction between the Bible and science, it may be that you don't understand the Bible. It may be that you do not understand the science. Or it may be that you have yet to discover the reconciliation between the two. Well, I think that's pretty good. His is better than mine, but I, I like drawing pictures. It helps, all right? So God created everything for a cause. Now that would drive the naturalistic evolutionist mad because he insists that everything came together by random chance without any designer, any builder, any creator at all. The text teaches something different. And we've got to then use ourselves, our lives, our families, our decisions to serve that purpose. And the reason some people are frustrated, it's the same reason that they would be frustrated if they tried to use their cell phone as a surfboard. Now just give Apple a few years and they'll figure out a way, okay? But you can't use your cell phone as a surfboard. It is not made for that reason. Surfboards aren't useful as cell phones either. What am I saying? The reason some people are so frustrated and cannot get unwound and live out anything meaningful in their life is that they are not using their lives for their God-given purpose. All things were created by Him and for Him. God caused all things to exist for a purpose. Now, Jackie Hill Perry today is a lovely Christian poet and mother and wife. And uh, she has uh, recorded some uh, Christian rap albums and has done a marvelous job. She's just released a biography entitled Gay Girl, Good God. And through some disappointing experiences in her life, Jackie began to pursue a lesbian lifestyle. And she had a girlfriend at 17. And uh, this girlfriend urged her to be more masculine, and so she did. She lowered her voice. She began to wear masculine hats. Uh, she began to walk and strut in such a way as to appear to be male in the relationship and anywhere that she went. She said one day she and this girlfriend were hanging out in a hotel lobby someplace. Uh, and that, that's, a, that's a different story, not in, scandalous necessarily, but a different story. But she and this uh, girlfriend were hanging out in a hotel lobby when all of a sudden a six-foot-four man burst through a door opened the door, it slammed it open up against the wall and cracked the wallpaper. He burst behind the, um, uh, the reception desk and was looking for someone. You could hear him rumbling around, cursing and shouting. And all of a sudden, this girl looked at Jackie like, you need to protect me. Are you going to? I don't feel safe. And Jackie said, no. And here's what she said. 
She said, all of a sudden, I needed someone and I wanted someone who was filled with testosterone who would come protect us both. She said, I was not able to do so. I cannot take on a six foot four man. I needed someone instead to do so. I wanted someone full of testosterone, by the way, that's code for man, um, and beg him to be strong for us, to gather up all the stuff God gave him for a time such as this and protect us. I could not protect her or me, and God got her attention through that and made it very, very clear that what you're doing is outside my design and my purpose, and you're not living for me. I did not make you to be masculine. I made you to be a woman. She gave her life to Christ a couple of years later. She's the mother of two kids, living zealously and dedicated for Jesus Christ and exalting His name. All things were created by Him and for Him. So, God transforms the formless and void to very good through cause. But there, there's a third way that God does it as well. And I want you to look over at chapter 2 as the story continues. God does this with constraint. Now God puts Adam and Eve into a garden and there is plenty there. There is abundance there. There is uh, uh, there's everything that they could ever need as far as their food and, and their, their clothing and their um, uh, all of their needs here in the text. And in the midst of this, God gives them a couple of constraints. And he does so beginning in verse 15. Look here. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to tend and keep it, to cultivate it and to guard it from invaders, which will appear in chapter 3. So the first thing God does is, watch this, without consent... God commands work. God doesn't bargain. God does not negotiate. God does not um, ask Adam and Eve to tend and cultivate or even live in the garden. He of his own sovereignty and lordship places them there to tend and keep the garden without their consent. Has it ever occurred to you that God does not need to get anyone's consent? And then he goes on in verse 16 and 17. Without their consent, look what he does here. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. So without their consent, God commands them to work. Without their consent, God prohibits sin. And then without their consent, he levels a sentence. The sentence of death. God feels free to act that way in human lives. God, without human consent, gives us a purpose and gives us a mission in life. He doesn't ask us for opinion. He's not seeking it. And let me give you a little hint. He doesn't really want it. What he wants is obedience. And then God then says, I'm going to prohibit these things. Without human consent, without negotiation, without vote, Without Listen, God is not running a democracy in our lives. God's running a theocracy in our lives. You've got to understand that. Or you'll be frustrated the rest of your life and then surprised on the other side of the grave. 
God, in other words, goes about human life the way some of you have gone about teaching teenagers to drive. Isn't that right? There are two very powerful and useful forces that you've got to know if you've not trained a teenager to drive. The one that they're most interested in is the accelerator. Do not let them put, that on, uh, put their foot on that first, please. That's not what they first need to be introduced to. Not the accelerator, but the what? The brake. The brake. Of course, when you teach some teenagers to use that, they get a little nervous and they slam it on and you put your head through the dashboard of the vehicle. Not that I'm speaking from personal experience, but in any case... But that's the way life is. God has an accelerator in your life, and he says, I want you to go this way. And then he's got brakes on the other hand. Now, you, you, you know, some may grouse about that. They may get critical. They may become rebellious and unruly. But let me ask you something. When you drove to church this morning, aren't you glad you had an accelerator? And aren't you glad you also had some brakes? Well, you may not be glad, but I was glad you had some brakes. That's the way it is with life. God's got accelerators. This is a command to live out His commands and His positive, constructive uh, ways in your life. And then He's got some brakes as well. Now, what do accelerators and brakes do for you? Do they restrict you? No. What they do is that they liberate you. Because if you will use an accelerator and the brakes and other um, items of the vehicle appropriately, you're not constrained. You are liberated to go where you need to go. And the same is true with God's accelerator and brakes in life. When God commands us to do something, that is a path to freedom. When God says, puts on the brakes on something, that is restraint from bondage. And, and if you come to the point where you trust God's wisdom and His knowledge more than you do your own, this isn't going to bother you at all. God knows human life better. God knows human joy better. God knows human thriving and flourishing better than any human that's ever lived it save Jesus Christ. And He was God. And so when God gives you an accelerator, a particular one, use it. When God gives brakes... Use them, and that is your way and your path to freedom. But there's a fourth way that God transforms things from um, being formless and void into being very good. And that's verse number 18 through 24. Here, God said, it's not good that man should be alone. And that's not mankind in general, the generic man. That's the male. Right? I've always said it's good for uh, wives and sisters to be around their husbands and brothers, they, they behave better. And uh, we appreciate that. But it's not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him or suitable to him or complementary to him is what I will do. I'll make someone that fits him. And that makes perfectly good sense because what came out of this is that God put Adam to sleep and he took his rib and out of that he formed a woman. And so he wakes up from surgery and he looks around and he's missing his ribs. And his wife has got his missing parts. They complement each other. And if they're close and tight with each other, she fills up his empty place and he's able to do for her what he is supposed to 
do. And that's what takes place in the text. And Adam celebrates this in verse number 23. He says, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Loosely paraphrased from the Hebrew, he's saying, wow, that's a woman. He's excited. He's thrilled is what he's got. So what God does from the very beginning, not after sin enters the world, but before, in the context of perfection, he places him into relationship with his bride and would eventually uh, expand that to a larger community. That's what God does. God transforms things from formless and void into something that's very good through community and relationships. But Proverbs 18:1 says, "He who isolates himself, he who isolates himself seeks his own desire. Doesn't want to listen to anyone else. Just wants to do what he or she wants to do. And rages against all wisdom," the proverb continues. Positively, Proverbs 27:17 says, "As iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another." This is what happens. Well, I uh, thought about this as I remembered the story this week of um, Dwayne and Iris Blue. Iris came from a really, really difficult background in life in Houston. And uh, really, Iris was involved in some things she shouldn't be involved in. Uh, And uh, outside a bar, a guy who loved her and thought the world of her uh, led her to Jesus uh, there. And she knelt down in the driveway there and she um, uh, turned her heart and life to Christ. Uh, right in front of that bar. And she said that she knelt down as a tramp and stood up a lady. And that's what she always wanted to be. She wanted to feel like a real woman. And God did that for her, turned her to Jesus. And now, my goodness, Iris, for nearly 50 years, has been a blaze of glory for Jesus. Well, she married a fellow uh, that uh, had a similar background. In fact, by the time he was an adult, he couldn't read or write. But he came to Christ, gave his heart and life to Christ. And the two of them since the call to ministry and to marriage, and so they did. But boy, they had a lot of things to work out. By the way, I'm holding this grinder. You're safe. Don't worry. Um, but uh, they had a lot of things to work out their relationship. They didn't have any healthy patterns. They didn't have any good examples that came before them. And so they were just doing the best they could in their own marriage. But they would fight, fuss, and fume like cats and dogs with one another. And one time, it just got to be too much. And Iris just thought, well, this is it. But before she called off the marriage, she called Manly Beasley. And Manly Beasley wasn't a a Baptist evangelist. He was preaching about 45 minutes away. And he was something of a mentor mentor to um, Iris and Blue. And she uh, called him and she said, well, I think we're going to have to get a divorce. But I think what I need to do is call you first. Can you come see us before we make that decision? He got in his car immediately, he drove, he arrived, and uh, landed there, and Manley was there for probably less than a minute or two after that 45-minute drive. And he said, "Um, you two, what you need to do is get right with God, get right with each other, and stop this foolishness and get filled with the Holy Spirit. Then he looked at Blue and said, come with me. Walked out into the shell-covered driveway and said, Dwayne, you got a lot of rough spots that you need fixed. And you need to understand, Iris is heavenly sandpaper for you. In fact, she's not just heavenly sandpaper, she's a grinder. (laughs) 
Now, some of you are pliable, and some of you are careful with your life. You consider what other people say. And so all God has had to do with you is get you married to someone who sandpaper. But Blue needed a grinder. He needed not just sandpaper made of paper. He needed something steel to grind him down. And that's what God was doing through Iris, shaping him into the man God wanted him to be. Folks, that was in about 1980, 81, and God has used them and turned them around. In fact, Iris has spoken here and uh, has done a marvelous job. Do you know something? That's why you've got the marriage that you've got. That's why you've got the family that you've got. God wants to transform you. God wants to transform you from formless and void into very good. But he's got to grind some things down because you're stubborn. You're difficult. I got news for you. Some of you are hard to live with. But you know what? God loves you. And he's brought someone into your life to daily either sandpaper things off if you're pliable or to grind you down as you need. Listen. Listen. Hey, 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 hey. She's not giving you any counsel that you don't need. She's not a dummy. If she is, just remember she married you. And ladies, right back at you. That's what God does to transform us from formless and void into, into very good. Don't fight it. That's God's work in your life. That's what the Lord is attempting to do with you. Now let me ask you something. Have you ever had a time in your life where someone gave you some advice and it just bothered you so badly, you immediately rejected it and decided to go a different way, but you thought about it some, may have prayed about it some, and you actually ended up accepting the advice that they ended up giving. Well, some of you have done that not realizing someone gave you that advice to begin with. You thought it was your idea. Hey, that's happened to me. When I was a senior in high school, my parents encouraged me to consider seriously East Texas Baptist University. But I had my eyes set on uh, a couple of other schools. Uh, and uh, one of them told me I could come and play baseball for them. I thought that was a stretch, but I, I think they, yeah, now that I remember, they didn't offer a scholarship. They just wanted me there to get, okay. I'm figuring some things out on the platform. But uh, that, that was one. Another one was in Southern California. And I liked the atmosphere there. I liked the, uh, uh, the Christian faith there. And it was, it was exciting. And my pastor had gone there. But I got to thinking and praying about it. Then I got scholarship offers from three different schools. And I looked there, and East Texas Baptist University was offering the least amount of money. But when I saw it, it warmed in my heart, and I had peace from God that that's where I needed to go. I went and told my parents, and they reminded me they had said that several weeks before. I've done that a lot. Someone's given me an idea. I change my mind, embrace it, and think it's mine. That's what I do. Have you ever had an experience then where you changed your mind? God's calling us to change our mind. Uh, Jeremiah 25.5 calls it repentance. And it says, repent from your evil doings and your evil ways. You've got to understand that outside Jesus Christ, life is evil. You may not think so when you compare yourself to others, but God's comparing you to Him. He's the standard. And, and so life is evil. It's not live for His purpose. 
It's not live for his purpose at all. And the Bible says change your mind from that. Become abhorred with that. Be, be abhorred with that. And turn to him. Uh, the Bible also says to trust Christ and his death on the cross for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus said in Luke 7.50, go in peace, your faith has made you whole. It's what he said. That's what trust in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ can do for you today. And if you will turn to him today, God will save you and cancel your sins. And then begin to put you in a way for which he created you. Would you stand with me real quickly and let's pray together. Father, I thank you in Jesus' name for the opportunity.